Father God, we are grateful for the opportunity to be able to come into your presence. We just ask you to give us clean hands and give us, give us pure hearts as we enter into this time of diving into your word. I pray, God, that we, even this morning, to seek your face and what you have to say to us. We pray in your name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, you can be seated as you're seated. I'm going to say my K through fifth grade out that back door over there. Head that way. You'll see Miss Heppy over there. So go on that general direction. And as they're heading out, I want to let you know that today will be the last time for a while that I am going to ask you to flip open to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to have you open up to Matthew chapter 5. And the reason why is today we are wrapping up this particular chapter in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. We started on the first Sunday in June by looking at the Beatitudes. We started Matthew 5.1. We began to unfold and look at the Beatitudes in that flipped way that Jesus taught us to think throughout the summer. The first week of August came, and as the first week of August came, we were able to then go from that flipped into how to live out that flipped way of thinking. In Matthew chapter 5, we have seen the Beatitudes, and then Jesus began to, to speak to us, and I'm not going to lie. And I'm not sure if you guys have been saying that this week and caught yourself saying it after we talked about it last week, but I'm not going to lie. This passage... And this particular Sermon on the Mount, I think has hit me harder and challenged my heart more than I ever thought it would. I originally kind of anticipated this would be an easy sermon. It hasn't been. And today, I'm going to be very honest, once again, using that term. I'm going to be very honest that it's not going to be easy to hear even today. When Jesus started off, after the Beatitudes, he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And as he said those words, he wasn't giving us a, hey, you can be. He was telling us what we actually are. It's not a choice as a Christian. It is what we are. And then Jesus lays out a truth after that and says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And then he drops an all-important statement that sets up really the rest of the chapter and where we've been. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will... What's that word there? Never. I don't know why that one stood out to me so much, but you will never get into the king of, kingdom of... All of these people... They were around and gathered. We're listening to Jesus share these truths. And as they were standing around, they're also thinking to all the things they've heard and all the things they've tried to apply about the law. Trying to live out the law, trying to hear, and what they, they're watching the Pharisees live it out. And then Jesus literally drops a truth bomb. And that truth bomb says this. All that you've been taught, all the things you're striving for, all the things you've watched modeled, they're not good enough. They're not good enough. It's not a high enough bar. They, the Pharisees, had lowered the bar. They lowered the standards of the law. Why? Well, so they could meet it. They could meet the standards, and then they could call him themselves righteous. Well, you know what Jesus said to that? Same thing we said last week. He said, nope. 
That's not the way it works. You don't get to lower the bar to make it where you are able to live it out and be good enough. You have to surpass that, or you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's everybody's goal. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of righteousness. I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of righteousness. He says, here's some examples. And they began in those examples that we found ourselves in for the last five weeks. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And he begins to lay these things out, and he says, here's the heart of the matter. It has to hit you in the heart, because that is what it's all about. The Pharisees, the disciples, and the crowds, you know, and even us, we do a pretty good job of making it look good on the outside. We can put on a show to make it look on the outside like it's supposed to. But Jesus says it doesn't matter so much about the outside. It's about what's coming from the heart that displays the outside. So the question is, what's your heart look like? How about your heart? What about your heart? Jesus says six times, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Sure, you don't murder, but in the heart, murder starts with anger. How you doing with that? He goes on and says, you don't commit adultery, but adultery starts with lust in the heart. How are you doing with that? You go through what you think are the proper steps to get a divorce, to fill out the proper paperwork. But let's get down to the heart of the matter, and let's really look at it and say, what is your proper view of marriage? Or do you have the proper view of what a wedding and the following marriage should look like. Then we looked last week at how they would actually manipulate the system so they could lie and still appear to be righteous. And Jesus like, no, that, that's not the way it happens. Be a person of honesty. Be a person of integrity. Or as my little buddy Charlie, when he came up and joined me on the stage last week, just tell the truth. That's what he said. Just tell the truth. Why is that so hard for us? Why do we have to say that statement? I just had to laugh so many times this week as I'm typing out my message. I kept going, well, the truth is, well, I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm like, I can't say that because last week everybody's going to hear that, and now I'm hearing it in my own head, and I've already said it twice. But here's the thing. That all leads us to the last 11 verses of Matthew chapter 5. It all leads us there, and we're going to talk about the last two you have heard it said, but I tell you, because I believe they really tie together. And the two that we're going to talk about today might be the most misinterpreted passages, especially within the Sermon on the Mount, but quite possibly in the Gospels. So I want you to make sure that we are clear on what it says. So if you do me a favor, I would love for you to open the book of Matthew chapter 5. If you're not there already, go to verse 38 and follow along with me as we read to the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, leave, uh, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The second one is here in verse 43. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, 
what reward you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together, and I pray that today we see this passage as the way that God wants us to see it. Father, thank you for your opportunity, or the opportunity for us to be able to come into your presence and be able to dive into your word. I do pray right now that the words that are here are received and applied first in my own life and then in everyone else's because God these words are hard but so is my heart sometimes I pray you soften it and allow me to hear what you have to say and allow us to hear what you have to say we pray in your name amen see I said this is one of the most misinterpreted passages of scripture especially within the, the Sermon on the Mount because people have a tendency to take a passage of scripture and they take it out of context and then they try and determine what it means. And these verses have been used throughout history to promote pacifism. They've been able to, to promote objection to, to military service. They've actually promoted lawlessness and anarchy that, that Christians should just be righteous doormats. Um, they have said, hey, don't learn self-defense as well as a bunch of other things. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if you had to read War and Peace when you were in high school, but, but Tolstoy's War and Peace, the thesis actually comes from a misinterpretation of this passage. The result was that he actually advocated for the elimination of police, um, military and other forms of authority, because we want to have a path to a utopian society. I'm not sure if you've heard that lately or not, but maybe you have. He believed that, that crime should not be punished based on three words taken out of context. But Jesus said, resist not evil. We must be careful, though, and understand that the interpretation of any passage in Scripture depends upon its context and the context that it is set in. We have to remember the context of this passage from the whole time. It is Jesus contrasting righteousness versus self-righteousness. He, he, he's putting those two on a scale together. So we have to understand that Jesus is not giving a new commandment, which if we follow this to the T, then we will earn our righteousness. Instead, he's actually marking out the character of a changed heart because that is what it is. It is a heart issue. That's where we are at. Jesus is not trying to change the Old Testament law. He's actually emphasizing the spirit of the law that's been there since the very beginning, but been twisted and manipulated by rabbinical tradition. So as we look at that, we have to see that each one of his specific examples he uses, he actually is contrasting the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes with his own. And he gives examples of how the characters of the Beatitudes should play themselves out. I'm not sure if you've seen the tie back. I haven't gone too much into pointing it out. But when Jesus is teaching about anger and hatred, as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees teaching about murder, it actually shows being poor in spirit. It actually shows being merciful. When he teaches about adultery and divorce, he's saying, here is a demonstration of purity in heart. When he, he talks about you know, keeping promises and not lying. You think this is what a person who's hunger and thirsting for righteousness should look like. It's these things on display. And today's text, as we, as we look at it, he's actually presenting the actions and attitudes of those people who will be meek. 
if you remember back to when we talked about the Beatitudes, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. So have that in your mind as we look at this further. So here's where we find ourselves today. The scribes again and the Pharisees again have twisted the Mosaic law. They've taken it out of context. The phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People outside the church have heard that. They, They know that. That is actually something that was around long before it was ever in the Mosaic Law. Hundred years before the Mosaic Law. We find the Mosaic Law in, in three passages. Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. But before that, there was actually a thing called the Code of Hammurabi. And I might be mispronouncing that, but I think I got it right, according to the internet. Uh, the the thing is, is that code was around hundreds of years before the Mosaic Law, and it specifically talked about the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There's another thing outside the church that's called the Lex Talionis. And in that, it's really literally translated the Law of Retaliation. The Law of Retaliation, in each of those passages that I mentioned from Mosaic Law, as well as these codes outside of the church, they have the same basic foundation. And that is this. The, the just punishment should be given by civil justice system to someone who's committed a crime. That is what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth originally meant. It was twisted. Now, when you look at this law's code, we have to understand this going in. It was actually a restriction requiring that the punishment meets the crime. It was a restriction, not permission. It was a restriction that somebody couldn't take something small from you and you kill them for it. It had to meet, the punishment had to meet the crime. And that's the way it needed to be. And the purpose really was twofold. The first was it presented ex- or prevented excessive punishment based on personal revenge and retaliation. It prevented that. See, man's basic sinful nature is seen in his desire for revenge. If he receives an ounce of injury, he wants to return a pound of revenge. I always laugh when somebody says, well, I just want to get even. I truly don't believe we ever want to get even. I think we want to get ahead. We want to outdo whatever they've done to us. And see, if you really want to just see it on display, look at little kids. When a little kid bumps into one, the other one's going to turn and push, and then it's going to escalate from there. Why do you have to push? Well, because he bumped me first. And I I was taught that. The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. That's what happens on the kid's scale, but it happens on a large scale as well. The eye for an eye, but it was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be judgment for an individual to carry out. It was meant to happen within the civil context of a court system. That's what its original thought was. Exodus 21 shows us that. Second thing we mentioned, though, is in Deuteronomy 19, that the reason for it was this law was actually to lessen further crime. It was actually to set an example. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 19, 19 through 21. It says, You must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. But then look at verse 20. Then everyone else will hear and be afraid, and they will never again do anything evil like this among you. It's supposed to prevent further crime. It says, don't show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it even expanded further to this an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the principle 
of an eye for an eye was actually a very fair law because it matched the punishment to the crime. It was also a, a just law because it restricted men from their tendency to seek vengeance beyond what the offender deserved. And then also it was a compassionate law because it protected society from going too far. It restrained wrongful conduct. But the scribes, the Pharisees, they twisted it. They twisted this law into meaning when somebody offended you, then you're required to take revenge upon them. Required. And it wasn't just physical revenge. It was also had been taken into a financial. Just in case you couldn't take enough from them physically, you could take things financially. That's where all the, the idea of litigation came in and, and taking some, but well, I was out this much money because you broke my arm and I couldn't work and blah, blah, blah. So they went into all of this in their laws and they really committed two errors in it. First, the restriction on revenge was turned into a mandate. It was turned into a mandate that they must retaliate. And the negative directive was basically turned into a positive thing. But that wasn't supposed to be a positive thing. It was supposed to be a restriction, not a permission. The second, they advocated the matters be taken into their own hands instead of taken to the civil authorities. Well, we know what happens when somebody takes things into their own hands. They go too far. So what Jesus teaches in 39 through 42, he really is, is comparing and contrasting what the scribes are teaching to what the actual truth is. The reason why I tell you all that is I want you to keep that in mind because I think it'll help us understand this message to us better and not misinterpret it. So let's look at verse 39. It says, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Those first eight words, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer, might be some of the most interpreted and most questioned words in anything that Jesus taught. But when it's put into context, and when it's compared with Scripture in the Old Testament, and when it's compared with Scripture in the New Testament, even within the Sermon on the Mount, because you're going to hear things and see things that Jesus says, and then you look at Jesus' life and his teachings and how he confronts and does resist evil and evildoers, I think when we take it all into picture, we can see actually what Jesus is saying. Because what he is saying here is he is actually forbidding personal retaliation. And I want to emphasize the word personal because it is a personal thing. We have painted it with a broad brush. He brings it back around to us. See, he was dealing with how evil happened to us personally. And in a flipped way of thinking, that flipped, flipped kingdom of God living, the answer is we have to give up our right to retaliate and respond gently. No gasps. Okay, I just want to make sure because when I wrote that, I'm like, I don't want to say that out loud. As a matter of fact, as I was studying and going through all these different commentaries and all these different things on these verses, I'm like, surely there's a better way to see this. These guys all must be wrong because that's not the way we're supposed to respond. We don't respond gently. We don't refuse the right to retaliate because it's hard. It's hard. And, and Jesus, when he's saying this, it, it really hits us where it hurts. And I mean the heart, by the way. Uh, while, while culture changes, people are still the same. And there's four things that he's going to talk about today that we hold on to really, really tightly. And he's going to say, open up your hands. Open up 
your hands. I want you to personally lay yourself down because you are a kingdom citizen. You are different. As a matter of fact, he goes into, he says, I want you to die to yourself. And that's a hard word to hear. I want you to die to yourself. And that's not the only place he's going to say it at. You heard Pastor Bruce read it up front, but Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 says this, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. And if I include a little bit of verse 3, it says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. There's been enough time. When you become a follower of Christ, when you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, our lives will be different. It has to be. We've been made new. We have a new set of beliefs. We have a new person to follow. Instead of my will, it is God's will. I love that phrase taken from the chosen where they says, get used to different. Because that's us. We have to get used to different. We have to get used to living differently. God says we're not supposed to be like the pagans anymore. We've been doing that long enough. Let's live as Christ lived. And Christ says we're supposed to die to ourselves. But then in this passage today, he goes into four specific things that we're supposed to die to. One is our honor. One is our honor. Two is our stuff. Three is our time, or you can even break that time into our freedom. I know that's a bad thing to say in church in America, but that is part of the thing. And the fourth one is our money. These are the things that we must die to. So let's look at the first part of it, but understand why. Why did Jesus say this? Because it comes down to a question, and the question is the title of my message today. Is it for our rights, or is it for God's glory? What do you live for? For our rights, or for God's glory? You have to answer that question. So the first challenge that Jesus gives is this. Die to your honor. Die to your honor. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. Again, misunderstood and misinterpreted too often in the Bible. People have used this to say, hey, this has to do with physical violence. This has so many things. If somebody punches you, no, no, no. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This has nothing actually to do with physical violence. Did you know that? This has to do with your honor and your integrity and to be belittled and insulted. It is about personal insult. A slap in this passage is described as the highest form of personal insult within that culture. I mean, it's still true today Think about when that statement is, well, that was just a slap in the face when somebody does something to you. That's where it comes from. Even today, to slap someone in the face, you're not trying to do damage. If somebody slaps you in the face, there's kind of a stunned, what was that type of thing? And in it, it was actually meant to embarrass you and insult you. And in our passage today, it's important to also notice that Jesus says the right cheek. Because in the right cheek, 
If I'm going to slap you in the right cheek, what hand am I going to use? I'm going to use the left hand, unless I'm backhanding you. Because a backhand was a double insult. As crazy as that is in the culture, a backhand is a double insult. And when somebody wanted to deliberately deflate you, deliberately put you down, deliberately belittle you in public, they would use the backhand. That's why Jesus emphasizes the right cheek. It was entirely designed to be an insult to one's character. And this is what Jesus is saying. The challenge is, how are you going to respond to being belittled? How are you going to respond personally to being insulted? Do you respond insult for insult so you can regain your honor? Or do you think and act differently and show more concern for God's glory than your personal honor? That is a tough question. But again, I do want to emphasize this is personal. This is a personal one-on-one thing. It's a personal attack on you and your character. If you've been dishonored by someone, I can tell you my first response. Why are you messing with me? Why are you messing with me? That, that's my initial flex move. What, you want a piece of this? You know, that, that, that's, that's kind of our, isn't that generally our response to these kind of things? But this is what Jesus says. Let them say what they're going to say. It doesn't matter. I, I can't even process that. And I'm pretty sure because the crowd had heard for so long that it was their prerogative to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There had to have been a huge gasp. But he doesn't stop there. He says, hey, don't just die to your honor. Also die to your stuff. Verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Again, let's look at this in context. Because we don't wear a whole lot of you know, cloaks and, and tunics and things like that. This translation kind of helps us out here. But what they had is they had a loincloth. That was their underwear. Then they had their tunic, which basically their pants and their shirt kind of thing that we be wearing today. And then their cloak or their coat. But that coat wasn't just something they wore to, to stay warm. It was definitely the purpose. But it was also their pillow and their sleeping bag. The coat or the cloak served a lot of purposes. And it was such an important part of a person's life, there was actually a law that said it was one of your inalienable possessions. Now we hear that word inalienable a lot when we talk about the Bill of Rights and such. Inalienable means it cannot be taken, it cannot be transferred, it cannot be surrendered. It was actually considered inhumane to take a person's coat. So with that in context, did you hear what Jesus said? Give him the coat as well. Because in that, those days, people would go after people in lawsuits. It doesn't happen anymore. But back then, they were really bad about it. And, and sometimes, if they didn't have the money, they would go after their personal possessions. And that day, it included their clothing. And the crazy thing that I think about is, is that even in this teaching, if you remember back when we were going through Revelation, one of the things we said is this is, was written to a first century church and the persecution and the the property that was being taken from them was what Jesus is really talking about here. The things that they were going after, Jesus says, hey, I get it. They're coming after your property, they're coming after your possessions. Our first response is, is what? Hey, that's mine. You, You can't have that. I worked hard for that. You can't take that from me. And Jesus says what? 
But when they come in the manner of a lawsuit, realize it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Hold it with an open hand because technically it's not yours anyway. It is not yours anyway. The Bible tells us the whole earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. We don't own anything. We are just stewards of his resources. Our response is one that we choose willingly to give up the things of the world to glorify God. And by the way, that has way bigger connotations probably than just this passage on lawsuits. But us giving up the things of the world to glorify God. Because why? We're living in a different world and we're living for a different world. This is completely flipped This is a completely different way of living, but that's what Jesus is trying to say about living this good life. The next thing he says is, hey, die to your time or die to your freedom. Die to your time or die to your freedom. Verse 41 says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Did you know that Roman soldiers had a legal right to make you carry their stuff one Roman mile, which was the equivalent of a thousand steps? Can you believe that? Again, in context, you are oppressed, truly oppressed. You have a Roman government telling you what to do, abusing you, taking advantage of you, doing all those kind of things, and they could make you drop all that you were doing and walk with them a Roman mile, carrying their stuff. It was their legal right. They could also make you drop what you're doing and help with a project. Think about this. Simon of Cyrene, you know that name? When Jesus fell, couldn't carry his cross anymore? Hey, you carry that cross. And he had to carry it because that was a requirement. And you know, you know that the Romans abused that and they crossed the line and made people do stuff just to remind them of the one who was in control. How would that make you feel? If somebody was forcing you to do something against your will, against your freedom, against your whatever it might be, They make people do stuff all the time. Well, when when that happens enough times, our response is, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get angry. These guys are just wasting my time. Their methods and the things behind them are just dumb. And every time it happens, you probably just get a little bit more angry inside. You do it because you have to, but then you probably go home or you probably go hang out with friends and you complain and you commiserate. I'm not sure if your mind's jumping to anything, but I'm not going to force it that way in the last couple of years. But we complain and we commiserate on the things that we didn't like. But Jesus says, hey, guess what? You're not like everybody else. Use this as an opportunity to give God glory. That first mile might be an obligation, but go a second mile and use it as an opportunity to serve and glorify God. Serve others and share the love of Christ in menial tasks that we're given. Reflecting Christ in our attitude is one great way to shine the light in the darkness that is this world. Again, this is a personal thing, but it's about God's glory and not ours. Then Jesus goes one step further and one step further. He goes just one step deeper into our wallet, and that's die to your money. Die to your money. He says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The truth is, the desire of our heart is the opposite of that. My desire is to hoard 
and buy things for myself. Right? That's just what it is. Because it's about me. But Jesus flips that thinking. He flips that living too. And he says, first, give up your right to retaliate. Second, give up your right to your stuff. Third, give up your right to your time. And now give up your right to your money. And you're like, but Jesus, I earned that. That is my money. It's hard to come, fi- come by. And guess what? It's hard to earn. And it's even harder to keep. I don't want to give it to anybody because it's mine. And Jesus says, hey, guys, ladies, where's your heart? As a matter of fact, he's going to say that again here in a couple of weeks. Just to give you that heads up. You might want to read ahead and see whether or not you want to be here that Sunday. But he says, hey, where your heart is, that's, or where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Those are painful words. Where's your heart? Where is your focus. Is your focus on amassing savings? And trust me, I, I'm not speaking anything against retirement. Dave Ramsey would come down here and beat me, beat me personally. Re- get your retirement together. Do those things. That's okay. But if it's all about amassing savings and it has nothing to do with saving someone who is down and out, then we're focused and our heart is in the wrong place. If we're only worried about our comfort and our retirement, we're missing the point. I mean, when you stop and think about it, what is one of the primary objectives of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? I believe it's to follow Jesus, and Jesus came to serve and not be served. But so often it's about us. He says it's not. The Bible tells us that, yes, we should be discerning. That verse has been used far too many times to say, every time you see a panhandler, just give it out, just give it out, just give it out. He's saying, no, be discerning, be wise, help them as best you can, and, you know, if they actually have a need, money isn't always the need. And especially if you're giving away all your money, then you'll be the one that's in need. So be wise and discerning in that. But at the same time, it also says we need to first think of others' interests before we think of our own. How do we do that? Well, it requires a radical, unselfish attitude towards our money. Open-handed thinking comes from a relationship with God. He changes our relationship with him. He changes our relationship with others. But he also changes our relationship with money. Can I just say those four things were a hard pill for me to swallow this week? So much so that I really, really wanted to find a different commentary that said, this is a better way to teach it. That it benefits you. That it makes you feel better about yourself. I couldn't find that. As I looked at it, as I, as I dove deeper into it, I just realized, you know, the one good thing is, is this isn't a checklist to get into heaven. But instead, it's actually a compass on how to navigate this world that we live in as kingdom citizens. God, God is speaking to us to, to guide us and direct us in the way we, we live in this selfish, selfish world. And this teaching was actually meant to strike the core of the heart. Our selfishness to be changed by that changed heart. But here's the great thing. Jesus didn't just teach it. He lived it. He he lived it. And if you know anything about Jesus' life, you'll see that he responded when attacked personally like this. Now, when God and God's honor was attacked, he fashioned a cord of whips and, and cleared the temple. It wasn't just about resisting, but when it was done to him, he went to the cross. When it was done to him, he stood silent. He didn't respond in anger. He didn't snap his fingers and call down legions of angels when he was personally attacked. And if you know anything about the discipleship relationship between a student and a teacher, 
The student followed the teacher as closely and did exactly as he did. As a matter of fact, if you have version, today's verse of the day, I'll break the news to you if you haven't opened it up yet. It's 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he remains in Jesus should walk just as Jesus walked. All right. Guess what? We have a whole other passage to go. Verse 43, here we go. Are you ready? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We've got a whole nother level. Not just die to the idea of your honor and your money and your stuff and your time. Now you have to love your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of the Father, of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, to send the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For time's sake, I'll go quickly through this. But here's what I want you to see. Another twist. Another twist by the scribes and Pharisees. In 43, he says, I, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. My question is, does the Old Testament actually say that? The answer is, is yes and no. Yes and no, because love your neighbor is in there, but it includes two more words. You know what those two words are? As yourself. They just happened to leave those off as they taught. The thing is, is that they knew those words. You know how I know they knew those words? Because when that uh, lawyer comes to Jesus and says, hey, what are the greatest commandment? And Jesus lays it all out there. And the second part of that greatest commandment is, is love your neighbor as yourself. His next question is, is well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? They had that conversation. He knew that it was as yourself, but they left it off. And the reason why it was an important distinction. It was easier just to love your neighbor and to find who your neighbor is and actually love your neighbor as yourself because we all love ourselves, don't we? And then what about hate your enemy? Is that found in the Old Testament? That phrase itself is not found in the Old Testament. However, if you look at Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, you'll see David say these words, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. There's other verses like that in the Old Testament that said, hate the enemies of God. They just changed it to, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But then Jesus comes in after talking about dying to yourself, about don't retaliate when somebody personally insults you, hold your stuff with an open hand, do what you're asked, even when you're inconvenienced, and follows it up with, you gotta love them. Oh, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word love here is the word agape. And I'm sure maybe you've heard that word broken down or the different types of words within the Greek that that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13. But the word agape is a self-sacrificing love for another's good with a generous, warm heart towards them. Have you ever said this to somebody? I love you right now, but I don't really like you. That doesn't apply here. That isn't allowed here. He says, we need to do this to our personal enemies. Those who dislike us, those who have hurt us, those who have insulted us, those who have tried to sue us. 
This is what we're supposed to do. The truth is, it's easy to love your friends. Everybody does that because it's natural. How do we love our enemies? Well, because we're different, and it comes through a supernatural power that's within us. How do we do it, though? How do we love them? I'm going to date myself here, but I used to listen to DC Talk when I was in junior high and high school and even beyond, and they had a song called Love is a Verb. It's action. It's action. It's action. It is, is something we have to do. We have to start doing good to them. We have to start doing good for them. And of course, the word love has gotten so manipulated in the last 10, 12, 15 years. It's okay to love somebody and speak truth into their life in a loving way. One way to do good for them is to share the gospel. To share the gospel. To love on them. To pray for them. To, to lift them up to God. And, and we'll see that maybe it even starts with forgiving to get to that point. As Jesus talks about in the Lord's Prayer that we're going to talk about in two weeks. Father, you know, Forgive them as you've forgiven, or forgive me as I forgive them, whatever it is. I, I, I'm bumbling it right now, and I'm not going to dig myself any deeper in a hole. Luke 6.27 says this, But I say to you, what, to those who listen, love your enemies and do what is good to those who hate you. But why? Why? The passage here tells me that God expects more from his children. He expects more from his children than just rather than us just saying, well, that's what everybody else does. He says, no, that's not going to work for me. They lower the standards. He wants us to be, what's it say in verse 48? Perfect. He wants us to be perfect. He wants us to imitate him. I think most of us are probably tempted to throw up our hands up and say, I can't. I can't do this. And you know what? You're 100% right. You can't. Just like I can't on my own but when God enters our life into the, that point of conversion that moment of conversion a new life is created by which the new us is fed by the spirit of God and we are made capable of attaining this call that God requires you know I can do all things through him who gives me strength that's what this verse actually means. Not, I can weight lift, or I can play basketball, or I can, that's what this verse means. Not only can we do it, here's the thing. We must. We must, because the bottom line is one of eternity. God desires all people to come through him, through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants his enemies to see his son in a loving and good and generous way through the lives of his sons and his daughters. What's at stake is bigger than our rights. What's at stake is their eternal destiny. It was the love of Christ that was extended to us when we were his enemies that brought us into the kingdom. Now we get to return the favor. We can't forget how we got in and we have to make sure we share that. And living as Jesus describes here will point the way for others to a conversation that brings them to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not for our rights. It's all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. As hard as it is to hear, as much as my defenses 
fought to type out words, to try and twist words just a little bit so it sounded just a little bit easier to swallow. But God, that's what the Pharisees did, and, I, and you led my heart to not do it and just say the truth. And God, the truth hurts because it challenges my way of thinking. It challenges my selfish heart when it comes to my honor. Is it my honor or your glory? When it comes to my stuff, am I willing to give? Am I, when it comes to my, my time, am I willing to, to hold it openly and give to those in need? And when it comes to my money, am I going to hold it loosely? Because it's all yours anyway. But when you change our hearts and you change our minds and you change our thinking into a way to see it properly, God, we begin to drift that way instead of towards ourselves. We drift away from ourselves and towards you. And that's the goal. It's for us to be more like you. God, I pray this morning that whoever you're talking to and however you're talking to them, that you're challenging their hearts. Maybe it's in a way to come to know you as your personal Savior because everything that I just said goes contrary to what the world thinks. But when you are in our lives and the Spirit of God is changing us from the inside out, we will think differently and we will live differently. If there are people that are struggling with that, God, I, I pray you break down those walls. I pray you chisel those hearts and the baggage maybe that, that's causing that thinking to tear down. I, I pray for the ability to forgive our enemies. As painful and as hard as that is to do, and not just forgive them, but to love them. And to love them with that agape kind of love, a self-sacrificing kind of love. God, all these things are hard on our own, but with you, all things are possible. Thank for it all in your name, Lord. Amen.